Mark chapter 2 is where we are today. We finished up chapter 1 last week, moving into chapter 2. You know, one of the challenges with really any kind of religious activity that is, is observed regularly or, or weekly is that we can easily fall into different rhythms and just the habit of things, and we can fail to think about the significance of what's in front of us. And that's really, that's a concern that many people have with something like the Lord's table. We observe the Lord's table weekly. There are many churches, in fact, many churches even within our tradition, within IFCA, that observe the Lord's table on a monthly basis rather than a weekly basis. And there are some churches that actually observe it less frequently. They observe it quarterly. And I've heard of some churches that only observe it even once a year. And the reason for that is often it's stated that, you know, I, I just think that if we were to observe it more frequently, I think it would just become too routine for us and it would lose its specialness. The reality is, is that there's, there's some truth to that. Anything that you do more regularly, you do run into the risk of losing the specialness of that activity. Now, my usual reply when people are bringing those kinds of arguments against like a weekly observance, my usual reply to something like that is, well, do you only sing songs once a month? You know, do you only preach sermons once a month? Aren't you running the risk of losing the specialness of those things by observing it less or by observing it more frequently and partaking of it together? The reality is, is that even as we gather weekly and we do sing songs every week and we hear a sermon every week, the, the truth is that even those things, they certainly also can become routine for us and habitual to the point that it can also lose its specialness, so to speak, can it not? We just, this is our service, this is our liturgy, to use a technical term, even though our, our liturgy is a pretty loose and, uh, liturgy, it's still a liturgy of sorts. But my question to this is, whoever said we needed to pursue specialness? Right? Why is that something that we need to pursue? It doesn't have to be special in that way. I'm not worried about losing specialness. What is of concern to me is intentionality. That even if there's a, a losing of the specialness of something, that we never want to lose intentionality. You know, we can maintain a weekly observance of the Lord's table, of, of preaching, of singing and prayer, etc., but if we simply go through the motions and we, we fail to be intentional about what we are doing, that's where the real danger lies, in losing our intentionality. This can be true not only of just different practices that we keep and that we observe, but also just even of the language that we use when we talk about biblical things. Many words in the Bible that, that are used to express what we have in Christ, you know, we have words like redemption and forgiveness and reconciliation and, and a whole host of other words, faith, belief, trust, all these things that are good biblical words, but we can use them so frequently that we can fail to dwell upon the significance and be intentional about how we think about those things. 
So I can say these different words, gospel, Christ, repent, all these different things that we're so used to hearing, and, and we can be tempted to just go along, we, we nod our heads, we say, yes, amen. But are we being intentional about the meaning of those words? Are we letting them sink in? Am I being intentional with how I use those words, or am I just using them because, hey, this is just church talk? Are we being intentional about how we hear those words, or is it just part of how we just go through things on a Sunday morning? Well, this is a mistake that I don't want us to make in our text today. Today's text contains a very familiar story to us. In fact, I can't even tell you how many times that hearing either a sermon based off of this text or just hearing people talk about this text, I've heard you know, kind of the phrase, oh yes, this is the story about the four friends that raised the roof. Right, it's just kind of a, a, a play on words a little bit there. But, but the, the, this story, it's, it's not actually about the friends. Right, the story isn't about the man who was healed. It's, it's not even about the scribes or the crowd that's present there. This is a story about Jesus and His authority. We've been talking about Jesus and the authority that he has in these different spheres, these different sectors, right? As he's healed individuals, cast out demons, and taught, etc. But as we look at this text today, if Jesus doesn't have authority over the area that this text reveals today, then his authority over all those other things we've previously looked at doesn't really matter as much, if at all. And we're in big trouble. The authority that Jesus has in our text today is of utmost importance. Let's begin to read this text. We are in Mark chapter 2 beginning with verse 1. And when he had returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I just want to pause there for a moment as we kind of just set our minds on this is the setting, this is the description of, of what's going on here. Jesus returns to Capernaum. This is a town that we're going to see Jesus returning to frequently throughout the gospel. It seems that this is kind of like his home base, so to speak, that, that he goes on these different trips, travels around to different towns, and then always returns back to Capernaum. And in many ways, this text kind of picks up where we left off with the end of chapter 1, where it says that, that the, the news began to spread about Jesus going everywhere, and that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was in desolate places, and people were coming to Him from every sector, from every quarter. They were, just, they were just gathering together lots of crowds, and this is what we find here in this text as well. He returns home, and we find more of the same Things are so crowded that there's not even room at the door for people to try to just kind of get a peek over other people's heads, trying to see inside, trying to hear what Jesus is teaching, because everything is so crowded. This is a problem for those bringing the paralytic man. We find our, this issue within the text. These individuals, they're bringing this paralytic man. He cannot walk on his own. They're bringing him on a stretcher of sorts, but 
They can't get in because the crowd is just too big. I was thinking, you know, just the, uh, yesterday we went up to the Maple Syrup Festival up in uh, Salem. There's so many crowds and we had the stroller we're trying to push through and there was a couple of points where it's just hard to navigate because there's just people trying to get this stroller through. Well, just on a, such an incredibly high scale, just scale that up even more, trying to get a stretcher through somewhere, it doesn't fit. Well, this is a problem for these men, but they have a solution, right? It says they go up onto the roof. Now, we want to understand this according to the context and the, the days in which they lived. In our days, we have peaked roofs, right? We, they crawled up on the roof would have been a, a strange thing for us in our day with our roofs, but in those days, a lot very different situation, right? They had these flat roofs that was not just for the sake of having a flat roof, but it was actually a location where they would entertain in the evening. It would be cooler. They would go up onto the roof of the house, and it was a place of entertainment. So there was a stairway that would lead up to the roof. These roofs were built, these structures. There would be large beams and then lots of, of smaller, kind of like a thatchwork of, of smaller branches and sticks and stuff that would go across and go, and then there was lots of mud and then lime that would seal it off. And so you have this structure. It, it was possible to support weight, but you could also dig through it to get through into the house. And so that is what these individuals did. They climbed up, they, they dug through the mud and the lime and all the branches and the sticks, they removed all these things, opening up and opening large enough to lower this man through on his stretcher. Now that sets the scene, sets the stage for us. Let's see what Jesus says when he sees these men. Verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic man, son, your sins are forgiven. This is a fascinating verse for several reasons. I find it fascinating that Jesus, when he first sees this man lowered it down, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't address his physical condition at first. He speaks to this man's sins. He speaks to his spiritual condition and not his physical condition. Condition, even though it would have been evident to anybody else that, that that's why this man was here, right? These friends brought this man because he's physically incapacitated and he cannot walk on his own. But not only does Jesus not address that at first, but Jesus' words, notice who it's in response to. Jesus says that when he, the, word, the text says that when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus' words were in response to the faith of his friends, not just the man. When Jesus saw their faith, I just see that, and while that's not the main point of this text, I do think there's something that we can learn from that, that God uses individuals with faith to bring people to Jesus. Right, in many ways, every time that we have a gospel conversation with someone and we're sharing the good news of the gospel of Christ, it's, it's like we are individuals carrying a paralytic man on a stretcher to Jesus. We must have faith in those conversations. When you share your faith, and this is, I just want to challenge us with this today. When you share your faith with someone, do you believe that the gospel is powerful enough to save that individual? 
Is the gospel powerful enough to have the effect of bringing about new life? And I can't help but wonder if it is our own lack of faith that brings about the fear that we often experience when we try to share our faith with others. Do we have enough faith to open our mouths? Well, Jesus responds to these individuals. He sees their faith and He says, your sins are forgiven. This man, okay, there he is. He gets his sins forgiven. And there is a word that it's easy for us to gloss over. It's easy for us. We, we hear that word so many times. Like I mentioned at the beginning of, our, uh, of the sermon here today about how we can hear so many terms and it just can become so familiar to us that we can gloss over them when we hear them in, as we gather together in church. But in reality, this statement from Christ really should have made us just sit straight up in our chairs. Son, your sins are forgiven. Boy, what? He had his sins forgiven? That's, that's the effect that it had on the scribes. Look at what the text says about the reaction of the scribes. Verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So here we have the scribes who speak up, and they're, they're just talking amongst themselves. And this is the first time we see the scribes mentioned at all since back in chapter 1. And they were kind of on the, they're kind of on the short end of the stick of a comparison between Jesus and the scribes when the people were amazed at the teachings of Christ. Wow, this guy teaches with authority, not like those scribes, which I'm sure must have stung a little bit for the scribes if, they, if that uh, report was ever brought to them. Well, who are these individuals? They were well-respected religious leaders, Their job, their professional career was to study, transcribe, to copy, and to commentate on the law. They were legal experts and often provided interpretations on the law as it was needed, oftentimes appealing to other rabbis in that process. And so here they are, they are professional religious individuals, and they they were compared unfavorably in chapter 1, and now here they see Jesus making a claim to forgive someone's sins, and that invokes the charge of blasphemy by the legal experts, right? If anybody was to know what blasphemy was, it was the scribes. They ought to know. So they say, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, we just, we, they ask a question there, and we look at that, and we say, okay, what's, what's the answer to that question? Who can forgive sins except God alone? And what's the answer to that? No one, right? No one can forgive sins except God alone. No one can, right? And a mere human could say your sins are forgiven, but that doesn't mean it actually are forgiven, right? That doesn't make it true. So, in many ways, the scribes are correct, This would be a blasphemous statement unless Jesus is divine. This is blasphemy unless Jesus is who he claims to be. 
Well, as we're about to see, Jesus knew their thoughts and He was aware of what they were saying because, spoiler alert, He's God, right? That's who He is. This is who Jesus is. And so we see in verse 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? The scribes think Jesus is blaspheming, so Jesus, He takes the opportunity to challenge them with this question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to stand up and walk? Now, if we think about that question, which one is easier if we were encountering someone who is a paralytic, what would be easier for us to say? Your sins are forgiven. Why is it easier to say that? Because we can say it, and we would never know the truthfulness of that claim until glory. There's no way to verify it. There's no way to see it. There's no way to, to prove it. They would never know if, they were truth, if that was a truthful declaration until death. It's a lot harder to say, hey, stand up and walk. Because if they don't stand up and walk going to look pretty foolish, right? Like you're going to look like an absolute fool because you're out here claiming to be able to heal people and you say to them, arise and walk, and then they stand up and tip over. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause problems. But Jesus doesn't stop with that challenging question. He says in verse 10, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. It's an incredible moment here. Jesus, he challenges them with this question, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? Well, he already said your sins are forgiven. He already said the easier thing. Well, now he says the harder thing. Stand up and walk. And he does. That's like an ultimate drop the mic moment right there. It's like nothing else needs to be said. He tells the man to walk and he does. And the people are amazed and rightfully so, right? Like this man, he was a paralytic. He was brought in on a stretcher, and now he is walking out in the presence of them all. But as amazing as this healing was, the healing is not the main point of this text. Or Jesus has already demonstrated his power over physical maladies, right? He's healed people. He's cast out demons. Like, like Jesus has already shown that he's got power. He healed Peter's mother-in-law, healed a leper, so many things, and and so many things that the text just summarizes it. He healed many people of various diseases, right? He's already demonstrated that he can heal people. If we miss what Jesus said here, we miss the point of this entire section. The main point is found in the words, so that you may know that the Son of Man, which of course is Jesus, 
so that you may know that the Son of Man has power or authority on earth to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. That's the main point right there. The healing was intended to be proof that Jesus wasn't blaspheming. Right? The scribes made this charge. That dude's blaspheming, which would have been true, except Jesus has authority to forgive sins. The proof that Jesus is God in human flesh with real genuine power and authority to forgive sins, He demonstrated that within this miracle so that you can know that the invisible thing of forgiveness of sins has happened, I'm going to give you a visible manifestation of power so that you know that that was true, that I am not blaspheming, but I have the authority to do what I have said. Now, just for a few moments, I want us to think on the significance of what has been said in this text. Think about the context of these individuals. You got the, you got the religious leaders there, and of course there's the whole system of the Mosaic law and, and the way the Pharisees have built on and added on to the law, and there's this whole system of, of works-based salvation, works-based righteousness, trying to earn a favor with God through the observance of the law, and then some, because the Pharisees had added on all this extra stuff, and Jesus offered immediate forgiveness, just like that, immediate forgiveness. I mean, something that is such a common terminology for us, uh, we come to church and we hear forgiveness of sins or Jesus will forgive your sins and all this stuff, that's a radical concept for the people in this audience in this day. Right? That, that, that someone could just make this proclamation, your sins are forgiven. It's a radical concept. We can be so used to the idea of forgiveness that it can lose some of its wonder for us, even us who have experienced God's forgiveness. So I, do, I just want to take a couple moments and remind us about what forgiveness actually means for us. I mean, think about how we are how we exist in our state of sin before Jesus Christ, before we have the grace of Christ in our lives. Our sins make us worthy of hell. Now, that's something that our culture doesn't like. And many times when there are individuals proclaiming a gospel, they'll leave that aspect out because they don't want to offend someone. Hell is offensive. But the Word of God is clear. That, what, that our sins make us worthy of hell. It doesn't matter how small we think our sins are. That is what our sins do for us. And I don't know about you, but I know I can speak from my own experience that I am a sinner, right? I think evil thoughts. I do evil deeds. I say things that are evil and we don't like to think of it in terms of evil. We might say it's a mistake, or we might, we might try to say, well, that wasn't quite right, and, and things like that. But it's, it's evil. Like, that's the word for it. That's the biblical word for it. It is evil. But even if I was the best person to have ever lived, and maybe I only do one sin in my entire life, James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but offends at just one point, still guilty of all. 
It's as good as breaking the whole law. I'm still a lawbreaker. But Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Think of other texts that speak of our, of our condition before God apart from the grace of Christ. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Colossians 2.14 says that our, that our sins stand as like a certificate of debt that is against us and hostile and opposed to us. It's almost like that, that certificate is, is listing out all of our sins and crying out against us, guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty before God. But Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 6.23 says that the wages, that's the payment or the penalty for my sin is death. Revelation 21 says that the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. But Jesus Christ has authority to forgive sins. Though I deserve hellfire, for my sins. Though I have this certificate of debt that cries out against me, it opposes me, it's hostile to me, Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive my sins. He takes that certificate of debt, He nails it to the cross, and He declares it is finished. It's paid in full. It's done. Because Jesus has the authority to forgive. This is so important for us to remember. We can get so used to our Christianese terminology that we lose the wonder, the amazement of what this actually means for us. I hope you're encouraged by this today. And this is tremendously good news. We should rejoice. And, and I think of what the psalmist says when he says, My soul delights and is glad in the God of my salvation. Right, that, that's the response that we ought to have, that song that we sang, to God be the glory, great things He has done. He has forgiven my sin, my sin. It should cast me into hell. And yet He has saved me. I don't know how you're processing this information today. There's different ways that we can be tempted to respond Sometimes I interact with individuals and they, they act like they don't need to have forgiveness. And most people are willing to say, well, nobody's perfect. But every now and again you run into an individual who seems to think that they can overcome that hurdle themselves. I mean, you might remember even several years ago during the 2016 presidential campaign that President Trump said that he had never asked God for forgiveness and didn't see the need to. Whatever you think of his politics, that's a very concerning statement. And yet there are many individuals who live at that same kind of, of hubris, right? They, that same kind of, of pride. And there are, but there are too many passages that, that, and we've even read some of them today, that even if it's just one sin, it's a problem. 
We must never, ever fall prey to the temptation that I don't need to ask for forgiveness or that I'm too good, too proud to come before the Lord in humility. Our sins cannot be removed apart from Jesus Christ. Sometimes I run into individuals who think that their sins are just too great to be forgiven. No, I've sinned too much. I've already blown it. You don't know what I've done. I've done too many things. You might look at this man in Mark 2 and say, well, that guy was just a paralytic. Like, he, didn't, he couldn't even walk. Like, how many sins could he have actually committed, right? I'm a worse sinner than that. Well, if you just stick around for another week, this, the very next passage is Jesus is going to offer the call of discipleship to a tax collector, a man who had the reputation of cheating, exploiting his own countrymen, and to put it in today's language, just an overall sleazebag, right? Like this dude was just not a nice person. That's the reputation of tax collectors. Friend, your sins are not too great to be forgiven. Paul says that he was the foremost of sinners, and yet he was saved so that it would be an example of the mercy of Christ. But maybe you're hearing this and you have already trusted in Christ. You've already looked to Him and have your sins forgiven. There's a sad irony that many people who I believe would have a biblically correct understanding of the truth of the gospel uh, they would have a biblically correct understanding of their need for forgiveness and have made a profession of faith in Christ, and yet we can still walk around as if we've got life all figured out. Uh, we can put on this air, we can put on this, this front of, of just having everything straightened out in our lives, and many churches have the reputation of being prideful churches filled with people who think they're better than everybody else. And it's so and I, I use the word sadly ironic, and it, it is so sadly ironic because the gospel should humble us, right? The fact that we need forgiveness should humble us. The fact that, that even just one sin makes me worthy of eternal damnation in hell forever, and it is apart from the grace of Jesus Christ alone that that's where I will be. That should humble and we who need God's grace, not just for salvation, but for our sanctification, for our everyday walk in our lives, should not be walking around as prideful individuals who, who are better than others, but should be looking to share the love of Christ. As one preacher said, I'm just a, I'm just a beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. So as we conclude our time this morning, if you are hearing my voice today and if you've not trusted in Christ, I, I hope and pray that you would do so. That you would believe in Jesus Christ because He has the authority to forgive their sins. And it's because of what He has accomplished on the cross. Right, that's where this whole story of Mark is going. Jesus has the authority and He is going to accomplish the payment for that authority and, and the, the accomplish the payment for those sins at the cross. When He takes the sins of the world upon Himself, that all who believe in Him and trust in Him would receive those, that forgiveness.
If you're hearing this and you are already a Christian, I hope that you're encouraged by the truth of this passage. I hope that you're encouraged, that, that you know that, that whatever, whatever sins we have committed, they're forgiven, they're paid for, they're bought by the blood of Christ. And I hope that you can see what the great grace of our God has brought about by saving you through His atoning work. And finally, I just challenge us to remember that Jesus responded not only to the faith of the paralytic, but to the faith of His friends as well. And I hope that's an encouragement to us, but also a challenge that it would embolden us to go out and share the love of Christ with others with faith, They would share this message of forgiveness in faith that the gospel is powerful and that God will save those who respond in faith. There is no greater message than the message of salvation through Jesus Christ to those who respond in faith. No greater message that our sins can be forgiven. That is the message that we have. Let's believe it. Let's thank God for it. Praise Him for it. And let's proclaim it. Father, I am so very grateful for this text. Truly, this is, this is one, of, one of my favorite texts of this early portion of the Gospel of Mark because we see the great love and the grace of Jesus Christ demonstrating His power through healing this man physically, but Lord, also providing for His salvation, forgiving His sins, that we will ultimately see that provision was accomplished through His death on the cross. I thank You so much that He has that authority to forgive sins, that I don't have to wonder, Lord, are my sins forgiven? I've placed my trust in Christ, but I don't know if it's actually done. No, I can be sure. Christ has done it. Because He is the one who keeps His promises. And this is the promise that everyone who turns in faith to Christ will be forgiven. Help us to live knowing this reality. Help us to live faithfully to you. I pray that we can go forth in confidence and great joy sharing this wonderful news with others because this is the message that the world needs to hear. That though our sins are many, the mercy of our great God and Savior is more. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.